Would you stand as we uh, read from God's Word, Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1. The Scriptures say this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Father, may Jesus be made much of, and may Jesus be glorified, and may we learn more this morning than we knew when we came. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning I'll begin a series of sermons on the seven letters of Jesus that we find here in Revelation chapter 2 and, and chapter 3. It's called uh, Encouragement and Warnings for Churches Then and Now. Um, and you ask, why would you preach about letters that were written 2,000 years ago? And in reading these and studying these letters over the past couple of months, I've realized how much of what Jesus uh, gave to John to give to these seven churches still applies to us today, still is applicable to us today, not only in our churches, but also in our own personal lives. It is still relevant to us today. The um, main focus of all of the churches that we'll be talking about is this verse that we find here in verse number 7 that says, He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me give you just a little bit of quick background. If you look here to the side of Asia Minor, there's a small island there called Patmos. John, one of the apostles, is there imprisoned by the Roman government for the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know through history that John is the only one of the 11 who was not martyred for the cause of Christ. He dies there on the Isle of Patmos, um, some say in his late 90s, when he is finally dies. And it, Jesus appears to him and tells him, gives him instruction for this whole book that he writes here. But specifically in chapters 2 and 3, he gives instructions for the seven churches that you see there with the stars beside them. Um, he goes in geographical order and begins in Ephesus and makes his way around and ends with the church at Laodicea. So we will look at, um, at some of those churches and may, uh, put some of them together. Uh, but over the course of the next few weeks, we'll look at that. There is a structure that we want to follow and want to understand about these letters that Jesus gives uh, John instructions to write. First of all, each one of the letters are written to the angel of the church in each different city. We understand that each one of these churches has an angel representing them. 
Um, in each one of these, Jesus is depicted in complete glory. He is depicted in his deity as God. Uh, this morning we read where he says that he holds the seven stars in his hands. We'll learn more about that in a few minutes. He describes himself as the Alpha and Omega. In each one of these letters, he depicts himself in complete glory. Uh, he begins in each one of the letters, he uses the phrase, I know. And he begins in all but two instances, he offers praise to the church, and he gives that church an assessment of some of the things that they are doing correctly. But then there's that three-letter word, but. In all but two of the letters, he uses the word but to admonish them that he has things against them. There is some reproof that he needs them to make some adjustments for. He uh, tells them that he, the, everyone who has ears in the church has to pay attention to what the Spirit says, and he makes future promises. He says, if you do these things or if you don't do these things, it's eschatological uh, is a big word for that, and we see in Revelation 21 and 22 how all these promises correlate to the future and what Jesus is writing. Now, we know this beyond anything else. This message is from Jesus. In my daily reading, I'm reading through the book of Jeremiah. And all through the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is, is God specifically says to Jeremiah, this is what to say to the nation that you are in. And Jeremiah goes and says to them, thus says the Lord. Jesus is doing the same thing here as he tells John these things. He says, these are, these are authoritative words from me, and you give these words to these churches, and they are to follow and obey them. It implies explicitly the deity and that Jesus is God here in these words. John, who wrote also the Gospel of John, in John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we know the relationship that he has for them. Now, something, something neat about this is each one of the churches is instructed to read the other church's mail. They're instructed to read and, and to see what Jesus is saying to the other churches. Now, that can be good or bad for these churches, according to what Jesus writes. So this morning, let's quickly jump into this first church here. Uh, we won't have to go through introduction again, and all God's people said, Amen. Um, this first letter is written here to the church at Ephesus, and I've titled this, A Loveless Labor. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever been in a situation where you were in a, a labor or, or that was a, a loveless labor. I can remember uh, as a younger man having a job, I went, I went to work, uh, I was about 20 years old, and I went to work at a certain place, and when I got there, there were all kind of people who were my age, and I made all kind of friendships, and I really enjoyed going to work every day and seeing those people, being around those people, and, and have, making those friendships, and began to interact with those people outside of work, but as the years went on, I began to be separated, people went to... Uh, most of those people had sense enough to leave and to go somewhere else. I stayed, and I was separated from all those people that I began with. And after I became a Christian, it became apparent to me that I was called to ministry. And I would go in every morning. I worked hard. 
I, I worked hard at physically every day uh, from the time that I got there um, uh, when I was 20 to the time that I left 12 years later. I worked hard every day physically labored. But there came a point to where that was all I was doing. I was just working hard. I was just going through the motions. I was just doing what I did every day. I had lost that love and that passion for being there. And I just couldn't wait for God to move me and get me away from that situation. Now, every one of us can probably relate or, or have been through a situation similar to that. Whether it be a job that you've had, whether it be uh, going through school. I know some of you have been to graduate school or went to, to get a doctoral. Uh, you know that there are points and times during that where it's just a grind and it's just more or less where you're having to prove that you can do it and get through it. Maybe you've been a part of an athletic team or something where you had a passion for it when you began, but as time went on, you lost that passion. Or maybe there's some relationship that you can relate to. Um, John shares this Jesus' letter to the church at Ephesus, and they're doing a whole lot of labor. They're doing a lot of things well, but he points out to them that they've lost the love they had in the beginning of their relationship, at the beginning of their church. And let's look this morning and see how he relates that to them. Let's look, first of all, in this, in this letter at the takeaway that he gives them. And he begins here with this mysterious saying. He says that I am the one who holds the seven stars in my right hand and that walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is where Jesus says that I am someone that is much, uh, I, I am God and I hold the seven churches in my hand. I am in complete authority of these churches. I hold the leadership of these churches in my hand. They're accountable to me, and what they do, they're accountable to me. And I am the head of the church, and I am ultimately completely in control. And he, he writes these and lets those seven spiritual leaders know that they're accountable to him. He, as he says he's walking among these seven golden lampstands, he's talking to the seven churches, but he's also allowing us to understand that we are Christ's representatives through our church even today. And he begins this by admonishing them and bragging on them and telling them what they're doing right. You ever had to be a part of a review or something? You, you have someone come in and you've got to, to review that person and you've got to tell those people. Isn't it always the best thing to begin by telling that person what they're doing right and begin off on a good foot and not hit them with all the bad at the beginning and then at the end after they're just completely flustered with everything that you've told them, how bad they are, then you tell them, oh, but by the way, you're doing a couple of things good. They don't, they don't hear that. It's always good. And Jesus begins this letter, and he tells these people, you're doing some really good things. The city of Ephesus has a great, rich history. There are 500,000 people who live here in Ephesus, and it is a place where most of the people from Asia Minor have been to because it is a great city of commerce, it's a great city of trade, and so thousands of people come to Ephesus every year to trade and to, and to do business there. But also here in the city of Ephesus, there is a great temple to the god, the false god called Artemis. Now, this church is established, if we know our church history, we go back to Acts chapter 19, and we know that Paul established this church there, in Acts chapter 19, 
And we see so many as he is, as, as Luke is giving the account of their time there, Paul begins to go and he begins to lecture and he begins to take the, what we would call the Old Testament scriptures. And he takes those Old Testament scriptures and he proves to all these people who are coming there to worship this false god that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things that have been written and that Jesus is the Christ, that he was crucified for our sins. And so thousands of people there during Paul's two years uh, who have come to worship this false god become converts to Jesus Christ and they go through all, all through Asia Minor and begin to plant churches and to begin to grow those churches. So not this church in Ephesus has a very great history in their beginning and how things they changed the area where they are. Now, some years later, after this church has been established in 89 AD, a man called uh, Domitian becomes the emperor of the Roman Empire. And he declares that he is a god in flesh here on this earth. And so he commands in the city of Ephesus for there to be a temple built to him. It is a huge temple. And outside of that temple there is a huge horseshoe altar. And in the middle of that altar there is a 16 foot statue of the emperor Domitian. And everyone in Ephesus is required to come by and to worship this at this temple and to give tribute to the emperor Domitian. Now, if these people are Christians and they are preaching that Jesus, that there is only one true God, God the Father, and that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, here to die for our sins, then it is, it is apparent that they cannot go to this temple and worship a man who is an emperor. And so they are beginning to face a lot of difficulty as a result of this. They are beginning to face some persecution. They are beginning to get some pressure because of this because they are expected to worship the imperial cult. Now, it's a very difficult situation, and here's what Jesus says. In the middle of this difficult situation... You are still working, you're still toiling, you still show patient endurance in the midst of this difficult place for a Christian. What he's saying to them there is you are a people that are exhibiting long-suffering. Now how many of you realize that long-suffering is one of the greatest attributes of God the Father? Is that he is a long-suffering God. Every morning in my prayers, I pray through the attributes of God. I give him praise for those. I praise him for his holiness. I praise him for his mercy. I praise him for his love. I praise him for his patience and his kindness. But at the end there, I praise him for his long-suffering. Now, why would I praise him personally for his long-suffering? Because this, God was very long-suffering with me as an individual. God tried to reach me through God the Holy Spirit on many different occasions and he was merciful to me in being long-suffering and that the fact that he left me here long enough to come to repentance. David writes about God's long-suffering in Psalm chapter 86 and verse 15. David says these words. In verse number 15 he says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, 
and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, what if God were not a God who is slow to anger? What if God were not a God who was abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness? What would happen to us in our individual lives? We'd be destroyed. We'd be destroyed. Uh, in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, uh, it, it, it speaks very explicitly to me. I look at this world and the condition of this world and the sinfulness and evil of this world, and I think sometimes, God, why don't you just bring this all to an end? Why don't you call your church home and deal with what's going on here and, and let's be done with this? Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 uses the word forbearance, which is also a term of long-suffering, where he says that I'm long-suffering with these people because I want to see them come to what? I want to see them repent and change their ways. God wants to give those everyone in this world the same opportunity that he gave me as an individual and see them come to repentance and know Christ as their Savior. So God tells them, uh, Jesus tells them immediately here, uh, I'm, I'm happy with you. First Peter 3.20, Peter gives the example of where God's long-suffering ran out with mankind. When he gives the account of Noah and building the ark, and Noah spending 120 years there building the ark, and there was finally a point to where God had had enough of mankind, and he destroyed the earth with water. And we know that someday in the future, God will destroy this earth again, but with fire. So we know that even though God is long-suffering, there is a limit and a time to that. Then he goes on and says, you are a doctrinally pure group of people. Look at verses, the end of verse number two here. He says, I know your endurance, um, I know you are enduring patiently. No, go back, I'm, I'm on three. I, I need new glasses, I apologize. He says, I know you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. You see, the Ephesians are surrounded by an evil culture, and they hate the evil that they see. God says he gives them an example of a group called the Nicolaitans. We don't know a lot about that group, but we know that they were teaching false, uh, falsely against what Jesus had proclaimed. And, and God says to them, Jesus says to them, I see that you even hate the Nicolaitans, and, and I hate what they're doing. You, you know, he's, he's telling them, you know the scriptures, you know what, I, what, I, what Jesus, you know what I have said, you know what the apostles have written, and as a result of that, you know what to embrace and what not to embrace. Now contrast that with today's church. Today's church, the Church of America, we not only don't uh, show our dislike and disdain for what is false and for what is evil, we embrace it. We embrace it and imitate it. We, uh, as, the, as the pastor who was here last week, our guest preacher said, we as, as Christians, we look the same as the world. We do the same things that the world does. And in our churches, we are not trying to be a, a, a distinct. We, what, what, what is the modern church doing? The modern church is imitating the culture that they see outside and bringing the culture of the world into the church. And what do we see as a result in the church? The church has become very weak and powerless because we have decided to be more like the world than we have to become like to be like Jesus Christ. That's where you say, Amen. Thank you. 
um, they know, these people know the words of Christ and the apostles, and they're able to expose those. Jesus says there are a lot of people who come through Ephesus who have claimed to be apostles and who have preached and who have said, this is what God says and this is what do and this is, and you know the writings of the, of, of the apostles, you know the teaching, you know what has been established, you know these things well enough that you can expose those things. Now in, in our pulpits today, most preachers will not take the time to tell you that there are false prophets out there in the world that you need to be afraid of, that you need to tune out of. I could go through a list of names this morning, but I don't want to offend any of you because you're probably reading their books and watching their television shows. I'm not going to offend you and tell you that T.D. Jakes, I'm not going to offend you and tell you that T.D. Jakes belongs to a, a sect of Pentecostalism that says that there is only one member of the Godhead, and that is Jesus. I won't offend you and tell you that this morning. All right? I'm not going to offend you and tell you that Kenneth Copeland believes in a uh, in modalism, which is which says that there is a God, and that sometimes He appears as God the Father, sometimes He appears as God the Son, and sometimes He appears as God the Holy Spirit. But He's never all three at one time. I won't offend you and tell you that. Okay? All right. Some of you are mad. I'm going to move on. I'll skip Osteen. All right? All right? But here, here we need, listen, here's, here's the point I want to make to you. You have God's word. You have God's word. You have no excuse not to know God's word and be able to see these things and be able to understand these things and to be able, when you hear those things, to say that's contrary to what God's Word says. You may be someone just sitting on a pew. Don't think you're someone just sitting on a pew. You need to know this Word just as well as I do. Amen? You want to know why? Because if I say something that's false and wrong, you need to be able to, sitting in that pew, be able to say, he's wrong right there, and I need to take this Word tomorrow and discuss it with him. Don't, be, don't, don't, don't think you can't because, because you can Right, there is error. There, are, there is great error in this world today. The biggest church in America, the pastor of that church, preaches that Mormons, Mormons who believe, listen to me, Mormons who believe that Jesus is the spiritual brother of Lucifer who is Satan and believe, Believe that Jesus was a created being and is not God in the flesh, was never God in the flesh, and believe that God the Father was actually a created. This is what they teach. And the pastor of the largest church in America said, Well, Mitt Romney said he believes in Jesus, so the Mormons must all be okay. You need to know God's word. You need to know. Michael, you're meddling. I am meddling because I love you. And I don't want you to spend your time wasted following after these things. So Jesus is, admonishes these people and tells them, this is the good things that you're doing. But then he continues in this takeaway and he says, your labor is much, but your love is missing. And here's the problem. In verse number four, he says this. But I have this against you, 
that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now there's two views of this interpretation. One view holds that Ephesus has lost its early love for Jesus Christ, and the second view is, is that the Ephesian believers had lost the love for one another, their love for one another, and that Jesus is telling them, you need to revive the compassionate works you did for each other at first. I tend to believe that both are true, because both go hand in hand. When I am completely in love with the Lord Jesus Christ, who else am I completely in love with? I'm, in love, I'm completely in love with my brothers in Christ. When I am completely in love with, with, with the Lord Jesus Christ, then I have, the, I have the, uh, the, that love overflows and spills over into my love for, for God's people. All right? Now, when I am expressing love for God's people and the people of this world, then what does it show? It shows that my love for them is a reflection of, of whose love? Of, G, of the love of Christ. So to me, Jesus is pointing out to here, your love, your, th this love that you have lost, goes hand in hand. You've, you've lost that passion and love that you had for me in the beginning, and, and it reflects in how you love other people that you are around. So Jesus is saying, this is, what, this is what's missing. Your love is mission. Think about Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 13, Paul says this to the church at Corinth. He says, you have these three things, faith, hope, and love. Which is the greatest of those three things? Love. Love is the greatest of those three things. He affirms what Jesus has said to the church here, and, and, and he says, what Jesus is saying is your love for me and your love for one another is, is, how, is, is, what, is what is missing here. Jesus said these words in John 15, 13. He said, greater love has no one than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friend. Jesus is saying in the beginning here, you had this type of love that you were willing to lay down your life for each other. You were willing to lay down your life for me. You've gotten very busy. You're busy about going about doing things and working, but you're not exhibiting that love that you had. And what he's saying here is, I want you to begin to pray for this type of love. It's the type of love that you and I should pray for every day. So we see the takeaway in what he says to the church here. Now let's look at the turnaround. A good assessment should always provide a good solution. When, when we give an assessment of something and we don't give the solution to that problem, then we really haven't done anything good if we don't give a solution for it. If we go to a doctor visit, I made a doctor visit several years ago, and, and the doctor's last instructions to me were these, you should lose 40 pounds. All right? What did I do? I, I left the doctor's office, and where did I go? I went and got a double gravy biscuit. All right? It didn't, it hurt, uh, the, the admonition that the doctor gave to me did, didn't go real well. And now, if I had taken the advice of that doctor, this was about seven or eight years ago, if I had taken that advice then when I was a little bit younger, it would have been easy to, to lose those 40 pounds. Now I'm seven, eight years older. It took me a whole year just to lose 20 pounds. I've got another year to go to try to lose the next 20. If I had paid attention then, I could have lost that 40 
I could be running marathons every 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 month. No, uh, but <laughs> but Jesus gives the Ephesians a guide to help them to restore themselves, and it's very simple. Quickly, it goes like this. Here's the turnaround. First of all, he says, "Remember." Look at the verse here. After he says, he says, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Let me ask you this this morning. Has your relationship grown cold? Has your relationship with Jesus grown cold? Are you laboring and serving? You're, you're, you're at church, you're doing these things, you're, you're going out and doing things, yet you find yourself not having a fire and passion for Jesus and other people that you had at one point in time. So you can be busy doing religious works all the time and, and not have that fire and passion and zeal for Jesus that you may have had at one time. Let me tell you, first thing to do this morning is to remember. Remember and then assess. Assess what you have replaced Christ with. Most of us simply fill ourselves up with the busyness of this world. As a parent, I, I, I can say this. As a parent of, of people my age and, and what I see people younger, we do things completely different than what our parents did. We fill our lives up so completely with our children's activities and without what our children have going on and what everything that they're doing and trying to get them everywhere and getting them to be what everybody else is and do what everybody else is, we're so busy, we, we most of the time don't have time to stop and spend the time we need to spend in God's Word. Now, my children's uh, what they have going on is important, and it's, it, it is, it, it's mind-boggling to think that we made it to this point and didn't lose one of our kids. But, but we, and it may not be just, it may not be, your, it may be something else in your life. But I can guarantee you, if you go back and assess and you've lost that first love, there's something that you can put your finger on and you can say, I've got so caught up in this thing that it has replaced Jesus being the first thing in my life. Now, look back to those days and begin to pray for a longing and a desire for that type of relationship. King David, who the scriptures say was a man after God's own heart, said these words. He said, return me to the joy of my salvation. Return me to the joy of my salvation. So begin by remembering and then return. Uh, I'm sorry, then repent. Repent means to turn. Repent means to take the direction you're going in and go in a different way. Repent is a word that we don't hear from the pulpit much. When I, I've been a Christian now for 24 and a half years. And here's what I noticed. When I became a Christian, our altars were filled with people who had sorrowful repentance and who were sorrowful uh, whether they were coming to know Christ as their Savior or whether they were a Christian who was uh, not living the way that they felt. Our altars used to be filled. Every church I went to was filled with people with sorrowful repentance. Do you know what I see today? Today I see dry eyes and empty altars. In almost every church that I go to, that I preach in, everywhere that I am, 
I see dry eyes and empty altars. And it is a reflection of how we have replaced the love and passion that we had for Jesus with all of the things and all the trappings of the world. And we don't recognize, we are so much like the world that we don't recognize our need to repent and return and to be more like Christ. It is a, such a sad situation to see in our churches in, in America, we see no need to repent. But here's the clue this morning. If, if you can read these verses and you understand that you don't have that love for Christ that John, that, that John is writing about here, the words that Jesus gave him, then it is a very, it is a very clear indication that you need to repent of that, ask for forgiveness, and go back in the way that you used to be. Because it says the last, the last thing here is to return. Jesus very simply says this, do the works you did at first. Do you know how complicated it is to be a Christian? It's not. It's not. Being a Christian is, is not complicated. It's really an easy thing. When Bree first became a Christian, on her mirror in her bathroom, she had an acronym that said JOY, J-O-Y. And it simply said, Jesus, others, yourself. That's how easy it is to be a Christian. Jesus comes first, others come second, and we come third. We come last. Our needs come last. And Jesus is saying there was a point, there was a point here in Ephesus where I was first, the city of Ephesus was second, and you were, you were last. And he's saying, go back and make the main thing the main thing, loving me and loving others, and everything will work out the way that it is supposed to. Now, ignoring the assessment and solution has consequences. Just like I said, when I ignored the doctor's orders, I went on with my life. It had consequences. I had health problems later on that, were, that I know were related to what the doctor told me that way, that day. But in verse number 5, Jesus says this. He says, after he tells them to repent, he says, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That's what Jesus is saying. Your influence as a church is growing dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. And there is a point, people of, of Ephesus, there is a point to where I'm going to remove your, your lampstand and I'm going to treat you just as I did the apostate nation of Israel. And I'm not going to honor you anymore at all. I've, I've, listen now, now you're, 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 you're looking at that and you're saying oh, there's all kinds of things rolling through your head. Two of the seven churches that Jesus wrote these letters to within the next generation, do you know what happened to them? They ceased to exist. Because Jesus gave them a warning and gave them an, an assessment of what was going on, gave them the adjustment that they needed to make. They ignored that, and what happened? They ceased to exist. Powerful, mighty churches that were doing great works for God at one time ceased to exist. 
Tom Rayner of, of Lifeway does church consultations. And he, he goes into churches and he looks at everything that church is doing and he get, most of the churches have either plateaued or they're declining and they ask Tom Rayner to come in and give them an assessment of everything from their facilities to their services, everything they're doing. And Tom's, Tom Rayner says this, what is most heartbreaking is this, is that I give them a complete assessment. They ask me to come in and give the assessment. I give them the assessment. They meet together and read it. And nine times out of ten, they say, well, he's wrong. And he says in about half of those situations, five years later, those churches don't exist. Now, over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to look at these things that Jesus says, and we're going to see that in, in our modern society, there are churches who are ignoring everything that Jesus says here, and every, I, I think that, and uh, help me with this, for, uh, Darren, you may, you may, there are like 7,000 churches a year that close their doors. That may be, that may be a lot. There are 1,500 ministers every month who leave the ministry. And 7,000, I think it's 7,000 churches in America every year that close their doors. The past director of missions for Calhoun County, before he left, he told me, Michael, it is so important for First Baptist Piedmont to exist and survive and thrive because there are 25 churches in Calhoun, 25 out of our 90 Southern Baptist churches in Calhoun County will cease to exist three to five years from now because they just won't do what God is making obvious for them to do. And it is important for your church to stay here and to thrive because those believers are going to have to have a place to go to. We, we can't ignore the assessments that God makes to these churches. And finally, he gives them a promise. Now, he says, if you do these things, if you listen to what the Spirit is saying to these churches, he says, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The tree of life is first mentioned in Genesis 2, verse 9, where it was one of the, one of the places that God made, gave Adam and Eve access to. It was for their nourishment and for their healing. In Revelation chapter 22, John writes about and, and gives us a description of the New Jerusalem. And there in the middle of the New Jerusalem is what? The tree of life. The tree of life that is there for our healing and for our nourishment. And he's saying you have, be a conqueror, have victory in this life so that someday in eternity you have access to all that God has to offer. Now, a wonderful, a, a wonderful look at a church and how Jesus viewed that church and how he gave them instruction and how he gave them admonition. Uh, the, the thing that matters most this morning is not whether or not you're a member of a church, but whether you're a member of the family of God. Whether there has been a point in your life where number two in the turnaround, you said, God, I repent of my sin. I realize that I am a sinner. I realize there's no hope for me outside of Jesus Christ and, and your forgiveness of, of my sins through what he did through his death, burial, and resurrection. And I believe that, and I'm going to repent of those sins, 
I'm going to turn for those sins. I'm going to go in a different direction, and I'm going to follow you the rest of my life. You can be a member of this church. You can be a member of two or three churches. You can have been through uh, christening. You could have been through confirmation. You could have been through baptism. It doesn't matter unless you have been to the point to where you have repented of your sins and asked God to forgive you of those sins. That's how you know. That's how you know that someday you're going to experience what John is writing here as Jesus gave him, that this revelation, that someday you're going to be there in, in the new heaven and earth. You're going to be there have, in the new Jerusalem, and you're going, to have, you're going to have eternal life. So although I'm preaching about the church this morning, I would be in great error today if I didn't give you an opportunity to come and to know Christ as your Savior. Darren is, going, is coming at this moment, and, and during this time, if you've been struggling with whether or not you know Christ is your Savior, if you've been struggling with baptism, if you've been struggling with where you belong as a church member and how you plug in somewhere, right now would be the perfect time for you to make that public. You say, Michael, you, some of you look, and, and I know you, you go home at lunch and you talk about, I don't know why he expects everybody to come publicly and do Jesus died publicly for your sins. Jesus died publicly for your sins. Wouldn't it be great to honor him by, by, by publicly confessing, I'm a sinner and I need Christ as my Savior? I think it would, I think it would be a wonderful thing. Maybe you just want to come and maybe, you, maybe your heart has grown cold. Maybe you recognize what I've said here about the church at Ephesus, what Jesus wrote to them. Maybe your love for Christ has grown cold and you're, you're wondering how that happened. Maybe where you are or maybe here you want to pray and ask God to deal with that. And maybe you want to return to that first love. Whatever it is, now is a time of worship, a time of decision, a time of reflection. Would you use it wisely as we stand? Father, thank you that we've come to this moment in time. Father, I pray for God the Holy Spirit.